it's, it's just so often that our vision of the gospel is just too small. So then we encounter these moments. And because we have a very small gospel, then we feel completely fine filling it out with a lot of other flourishes around our politics and our, our concerns, all of which matter. I'm not in the least uh, dispensing with that. I'm just saying a Christian imagination needs to be bigger than the political categories that were handed. That's what Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Seminary, told us on our last episode of the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. Today we're going to do part two of that interview, so if you missed part one, go back and listen to it now. We'll wait and let you come back here. President Laverton today in part two gives us a vision of evangelicalism and what it can look like without all the partisanship and with a, a real heart for God's justice on earth. President Mark Laverton of Fuller Seminary is our guest today. And this is, Fuller Seminary is a really significant seminary in sort of my area of Christianity and the, and the churches that are a lot like ours. And so this is a really neat podcast for me and a really important message from President Laverton. So listen in as Mark Laverton of Fuller Seminary is our guest on part two of our discussion with him on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I, when I see Jesus in the gospel, he, he never really answered the religious guy's questions, it seems to me. And so, right. so yeah. it seems today if somebody had him on a radio show and said, are gay people going to hell, yes or no? Uh, my imagination is he would not answer the question. He would have, like you say, some bigger view. Like, that's yeah. not really the yeah. question Father God is asking right now. Right, right. Yeah, I think the kingdom of God, as Jesus teaches it, is is the key that actually cracks open the whole of the universe. Mm. It's what it's what opens the expansiveness of this vision of a transformative recreated universe after the image and purposes of God marked by the same righteousness and goodness and truth that Jesus has revealed, but infinitely greater than Rome, infinitely greater than the domination of certain kinds of religious practices. It's, it's an, it is literally a reality that can only be described as a resurrection reality. It's a category that we do not know and that it has been ushered in in Jesus, but not yet fully manifest. And, mm. and I think that's what I at least want to stimulate my imagination and the imagination of, of people that I have an opportunity in some way to try to encourage. That's good. Well, let, let me take you back to this, uh, the meeting that you had in 2018 with the, this evangelical group. I, how was that received a little bit? And I've, I've read some of uh, the, the follow-up to all of that. And there were some that kind of said, hey, it was an anti-Trump meeting. Uh, my sense is you're, I think you said this is bigger than any one election. This has actually been coming for a while. Yeah. But, so, so how did well, we get here, I guess, a little bit? And, and what, yeah. Was, yeah, what was well, the response to all that? Yeah, that particular gathering came about because of really, a, I think, just a, a kind of informal set of people who in one way or another would identify as evangelical leaders who came from different parts of the country, who had some degree of trust together to be able to... Um, you know, to be able to acknowledge um, that that there were things that were happening on the landscape that we were really troubled by. And of course, because everybody knows it feels so electrifying and problematic to speak or to post things, um, it felt like let's have an off the record conversation. So when I went to the meeting, I was fully expecting that it was literally an off the record conversation. And that was what I'd understood. And 
and I was asked to give uh, my own reflections on where we were. It happened that I was asked to go first. It was announced just before I spoke that in fact, any, any sort of plenary talk was going to be on the record and only things that were said off, uh, not on the, in the plenary talks were going to be public. Now, you know, in fairness, it turned out there was an email that apparently had told me that in advance, but I did not prepare what I shared um, for broadcast. But by the before I sat down, uh, it was clear that I'd already had portions of my talk tweeted. So I decided <laughs> it made more sense. <laughs> there, to, there is uh, nothing that's private anymore, is there? Right. So it made more sense to then um, release the text of what I had said, which is what that, uh, which is what you've seen. So um, what's fascinating about it was to me was that when that got picked up and and pretty broadly distributed. Um, it caused a lot of people across the political and geographic spectrum in the U.S. to write to me and express um, their support or their condemnation for what I'd said. And there were other people who also just wrote with what I would call really reflective questions. I mean, what? how can you say this when, when such and such a thing may be true, um, having to do with usually the Democratic Party or vice versa? Um, namely, what what does it have to do with the Republican Party? Um, when I got the sense that people were really interested in following it further, I would write back to them. We'd sometimes exchange. I ended up having a number of phone conversations with some of them. Um, some of them I've actually remained con- in contact with because I feel like they've been, they've become good um, conversation partners with me because they don't hold the same views that I do. Mm-hmm. And the whole conversation is not turned around uh, the president. It's really turned around. Um, what is the character of the gospel of the the character of the kingdom of God? What does it mean for a Christian in our culture and society in the United States today to think seriously about matters of faith and the public square? So that's where the conversations have been. And it was a. Uh, in the end, I was grateful that it actually uh, did become something that was available. And I I think it uh, like anything where it's always an iterative thing none i certainly know have have no final truth to speak and that talk is not my final truth let alone god's final truth but um but it is an attempt to try to grapple with how i understood things let me think how to ask this well i i mean is there anything that that should be raised in us when we see that that evangelicals are somewhere around you know 80 plus percent in favor of president trump and um, I, I guess, yeah. Do we look at that at all and, and, and draw some conclusions about where evangelicalism is? And, and I guess I ask that, can we do that without necessarily saying President Trump is good or bad or Cyrus or Saul or otherwise? Uh, is there any conclusion we can draw from seeing how vociferous the support is in the evangelical church for President Trump? Right. Well, I think what we have to do is do a fair analysis of the places from which that support has arisen, which often has meant, I think, a feeling that they were being driven by an an agenda from the left that many people um, have felt was really a discredit to the gospel, that it was dehumanizing in the case of of, of abortion laws, that it was destructive to all of these uh, fetal lives that were developing, that it was, um, that it's a betrayal of Christian values to have to sign on to a kind of total secularist vision that rights were being put at stake and so forth, right? All these things are, are some of the things that were part of it, as well as some of the economic and cultural and even racial issues that were also intrinsically part of it. 
So I guess it feels to me like a little bit like an onion. You have to peel off various layers to figure out in any given person's case, what it is that's the trigger of their identification with an agenda, which feels so partial to me, as does the agenda of the left, I want to say. Um, I, I think that the gospel indicts both the left and the right and everyone in between. It's not as though it is uh, in any way an endorsement of of conservative or of liberal. I think those are are almost meaningless words when it comes to the Christian faith. I think it, it has to do with how do we understand the, the incarnation of Christian values, which are so much richer than those two political categories, which have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They just happen to be a political reality of the era that we live in. I mean, it, it's hardly like these are sanctified uh, categories. So in any case, I think part of it is you have to peel off what it is. And I think the most painful part um, has been the unwillingness and inability to be able to stand in anyone else's shoes. And mm-hmm. I think um, the adamacy and the arrogance with which, again, the right and the left have spoken is part of what it feels to me is is so condemning, self-condemning to those of us who are Christians who are taking views that are so adamant that we absolutely, utterly, and completely reject hearing from any other voices than the ones that we identify with. And whether those are voices on the right or the left is the problem. When they're on the right in the way that you are asking about, they do tend to prioritize um, individual uh, rights over any kind of collective or societal rights. It occupies a certain side of privacy of being rather than a public good. It tends to um, to fall on a certain kind of place about um, what justice means, which usually means a making sure that the, the guy with the biggest stick is on your team so that you can beat <laughs> the other team. Those are, those are, I find it very hard to see any evidence of the character of God mm-hmm. uh, in, in that sort of tendency. And then I will say that, especially in relationship to president Trump himself, that the fact that people have gone to such a degree as, as many have done in so identifying with his agenda and with his character and even his style um, as a Christian act, I just find that really unimaginable, as I would many other political figures. So I'm not saying that uniquely of President Trump, but um, but in the case of President Trump, I do admit that I find it particularly problematic. Well, he's a unique character, so <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's hard not to do something that's uniquely him. And and I think for me, it's. Again, going back to how this impacts the gospel is, I think when the world looks at how evangelicals treated, say, Bill Clinton in the in the midst of the Lewinsky scandal or President Obama for any number of things, and then to be seemingly completely forgiving of any malfeasance of, of President Trump whatsoever, I, I don't know, it's almost 11 of the Pharisees that Jesus warned us about kind of thing where that hypocrisy seems to drive yeah. people away. Yes. And if Jesus as Lord critiques any and every form of power, then there is no form of power at any level, which the gospel does not call into account. Right. And the fact that Christian voices who are even as advocates, let's imagine that you are a huge advocate of what he's doing, then all the more does it also entitle you and oblige you to critique the places where the, you believe the gospel critiques what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So, so even if you're going to support all of the things that you think that he's doing that are really right, surely there are more than just a short list of things that are indications of his abuses of power. 
and abuse of the of the character of of God in the way that he chooses to act and to lead. That should matter, it seems to me, to Christian people who are saying not just how do I get my will done, but how do I exercise what I think is the character of Jesus in what I'm doing. Mm. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the antidote to that in that um, we have voices in our churches we call them prophetic voices or you know people that that hear from god and and several of them that are really significant people in my life good people are saying god wants to turn california red that's a specific kind of ongoing word that we're hearing that that god wants republicans to get elected in california and trust me my you know we're republicans in my household and sometimes we have some trouble with some of the things the democrats do in california no question about it but i I've never felt that God has told me what I want is for Republicans to get elected in California. That, that doesn't mean he doesn't want them to, but it, how do we kind of get out of that mindset of feeling like Republican equals God and Democrat equals not God? Well, first of all, you have to remember, this is not a new uh, kind of positioning. This has existed from the very beginning and not least from constant <laughs> on uh, in the ability to take power and use it for the ends that we earnestly think are right. So, I believe probably uh, I'm going to take it at least at face value that people that speak like that are speaking earnestly, that they speak out of a, out of a desire for what they think is a political good that they think will be more appropriate to the character of God. I just find no political party does that. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't possibly say that that would be true. And, and I would say, I, I would, I would stand frankly against that. Because, um, but I would stand against it if anybody was standing there and say, God wants the state to be blue. That's not true either. Um, God wants people to be righteous. And there is so much unrighteousness in the Republican Party, as there is also so much unrighteousness in the Democratic Party, that from my point of view, it just it would be completely impossible in that sense to be aligned. In that way, on a, in terms of political parties, I would be like, the nation of, of Switzerland and be non-aligned. I don't, I don't see how you can actually be exclusively aligned. So when you say, for example, that you're Republicans in your house, great. I have no problem with that, provided that that is not the sum of all that you would want to say or feel you're responsible for advocating, yeah. right? So everybody understands that you have a, that it would be responsible for us to carefully try to discern how do we stand inside any political activity or social activity or political social reality that we're part of and how do we faithfully live that out okay that's fine and even align yourself that's fine but not in a totalizing way yeah. not in a way that suggests this is the consummate answer and that really everybody or the dominant culture that's really saying that that a person who would speak that way believes that the state of california for example should be dominated by a republican vision that's to me the entirely wrong language. I don't want it to be dominated by Democrats either. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that feels to me like a, a, a wrong construct. And it assumes certain things about power, which are far from being things like the things that I would say Jesus teaches. I, most of my Republican friends aren't so sure I'm Republican anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe that means I'm doing it fairly right then, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Hope you're enjoying our conversation with President Mark Laverton of Fuller Seminary. 
Let me take a moment here to tell you about a very special segment that you can hear with Dr. Laberton. It's available with the NPE Patreon community over on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash NPE podcast. Now, Patreon's a website for creatives to get financial support from people who enjoy their work. Shakespeare, Mozart, Galileo, these are guys that were able to do what they do because their daily expenses were taken care of by patrons who supported them. And that kept their amazing work going and churning out the music and, uh, and, and the science and all the things they did. And, and we always laugh and say, you're correct. Ashley and I, we're not Mozart or Galileo, but we're not bad either. And if you feel our message is worthwhile, then join us as a patron in our NPE Patreon community. It's patreon.com slash NPE podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NPE podcast. Remember, it's a special segment that is only available to those who support us financially on our Patreon site. And we're very offered, uh, very excited to be able to offer sort of this special time with Dr. Laberton to our patrons and our Patreon community. So go check it out and hang out with us as we change the world and challenge mindsets with NPE podcast. All right, we'll be back at the end to tell you more. Now again, Dr. Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Seminary. I asked uh, uh, some people on our social media if they wanted, if they had a question, what they would ask. And so I have one here from uh, a friend named Chris. He said, if you could give one message to the American Evangelical Church and knew they would hear, what would that message be? Give up your small gospel (laughs) and discover the reality of the fullness of the kingdom of God that reinvents and recreates every relationship every arena of life, every dimension of human experience to reflect the fullness of who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Andrew asks, so what are the spiritual disciplines that you have in your life that keep you sort of being in line with the new way God has to move forward? How do you keep from getting trapped in a, in a mindset that you don't want to be trapped in? Right. Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think one of the things that I do is spend, as I said earlier in the, this interview, um, I do try to spend a lot of time regularly in the Gospels. I do find being in the Gospels to be jarring, that to be disorienting, to constantly be evidence to me of a surprisingly different set of instincts than my cultural, educated, left coast, uh, white male context. I'm just... I'm undone by the gospel again and again and again. It's just bigger, greater, deeper, wider, more different than I uh, than a domesticated gospel that I might be prone to to give myself to. So I think that's uh, that's one thing. I think um, being with people who and deliberately seeking friendships, close friendships with people who do not share my political and social view, who don't share my social location, who come at life educationally, racially, in in uh, physical location, in in type of work, and so forth, from a radically different place than my own. And I try, at least, to genuinely listen. I want to hear how people have come to their convictions. Why, why do they hold those particular views? What are their fears? I've been writing a book on fear. And, um, and one of the interesting things about this book has been to have long conversations about the ways that people manage fear in their life. And 
And I think one of the things that, that I have to acknowledge is the instincts in me that might be fearful instincts that cause me to come to conclusions that are mostly about how to manage my fears, not necessarily about how to do justice or to love mercy or to walk humbly before God. So likewise, I want to understand what are the fears of others. I think there's a collection of things like this that end up, um, you know, putting me in a different position. I read um, several newspapers each day and I try to always have a couple of them be international newspapers where, um, where it's not an American or North American or Western European vision. It's really a different vision of the world, different headlines in English. Many, many, many major cities around the world have, have English uh, weekly newspapers, if not daily newspapers. And, and I find it really interesting to read that coverage because it's just expressive of a really different social reality than the one that I live in. Mm. And uh, I want to remember that um, when I would preach uh, regularly as to the same congregation every Saturday night, I got an email from a missionary couple who were serving in an extremely challenging circumstance in Southeast Asia. And when I was asleep on Saturday night, their email would arrive. And the only email that I would let myself read before I would go to preach on Sunday morning was their email detailing their week and what they had encountered in this radically needy, poor, uh, overwhelming circumstance they were serving in, in, in a slum in Southeast Asia. And and I felt like, okay, if the gospel that I'm going to try to live and that I'm going to go out and preach is the gospel, it has to land as strongly in that setting that they're serving in as the setting in Berkeley that I was in at the time, right? And if it's not, then I have to at least ask myself, is the gospel that I'm preaching really just a function of my social circumstances? It's a gospel that fits people like me. Now, I realize some people say, well, but it has to apply to different places in different ways. Okay, all that's true. That wasn't really my question. I'm asking more, is the character of the gospel that I'm preaching as much gospel in, in people who have nothing and in desperate circumstances in Southeast Asia as it is for privileged, educated people of many different colors and races in a town like Berkeley? Hmm. That upsets me in ways that I'm really grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. And, and uh, as some friends of mine have written a book called The Language of Healing, which you wrote an endorsement for that. Yes, it's, right. It's all about having different conversations. I think uh, talking with people right. who believe differently than us is so important. So important. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Elaine asked a, a, a question about racial justice. Uh, racial justice is something my wife and I have felt is important for us in this season, particularly in economic opportunity for for Amen. people of color and yeah. marginalized people and and so where do you see racial justice in scripture and and in the gospels as you're reading it and and what responsibility Christians carry for that um many many people have written about the fact that race is fundamentally a social construct um what that doesn't mean is that that melanin is a social construct clearly people have different pigmented skin, but, but race as a social category that raises up some and lowers others is a construct. It's a social construct. It's how we've sorted difference. And, um, and so I, I don't think that there are places in scripture that I think suggest that, that there's a, the presence of, of racial difference, because if you did the historical search about who is where and where these people are coming from and what it is that's going on in any given part of the Old or New Testament, you'll find quite a lot of racial 
and tribal variation. Um, but I, I think what you see is the fundamental question is that God isn't put off by any of those differences. He does not prioritize uh, any of those differences as greater or lesser than any others. And all of us are seen as people who are fearfully and wonderfully made, just to quote Psalm 139. So then the question of, of justice becomes a, the question of the right use of power. And injustice is simply the abuse of power in some sort of way. So if, if we read Isaiah 58, which starts with, uh, you know, this condemnation of Israel's worship, the condemnation in the end is that, that they live as though they were people who practice righteousness, the text says. But the way that they then live, leave the temple and go out and live in the world violates their worship because the way that they care for the stranger, the other, the poor, the outcast, the immigrant, etc., is not a reflection of the God that they've worshipped. So throughout the prophetic literature, there's places where God is as much as saying, I hate your worship because mm. you come into my presence claiming that you want my righteousness. Then you go out and you live your racism. That is not faithful worship. And it therefore means that it indicts what we do in the temple or in the church. Um, and so I think this question of racial justice, other kinds of injustice as well, but because you asked about racial injustice, it's a deep crisis and it's a very deep crisis and, and an exceptional crisis in the history of the American church because of the 400 year history of slavery and the white churches, not just complicity, but full advocacy for slavery. Um, it's just an extraordinary thing. I would recommend as a book that you might want to uh, consider any, anybody who's listening to this, a book by Jamar, J-E-M-A-R, Tisby, T-I-S-B-Y, Jamar Tisby, called The Color of Compromise. And it's really a book about the history of the way that, that white cultured Christians um, portrayed and described racial difference and the, the, the essential racism that exists inside that narrative over the 400 years. We are still embedded in that narrative. And uh, even though slavery seems like a long time ago, the narrative is still alive and well. You just have to know African-American people well enough for them to tell you the truth about what they really experience. Yeah. All right. We'll, uh, we'll link that book in our show notes and your book as well about the, the dangers of social justice there, Rick. And so President Mark Laberton, sure, appreciate your time today. I know your time is, is valuable and you give me hope because sometimes it feels like we're the only ones that think this way out here. So uh, somebody like you to courageously stand up and say, hey, there is another way to think out there is gives us great hope. So thank you for that. Well, God bless you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast with Dr. Mark Laberton, the president of Fuller Seminary. I'm a nonpartisan evangelical. Coming up on our next podcast, I have an amazing guy named Bob Prater who does a, a podcast called A Christian and a Muslim Walk Into the Studio, and you'll hear that coming up down the line. Get on our insiders list to get an alert to when that's coming at our npepodcast.com website. Also, I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity to get my novel for free absolutely free. You can get uh, an autographed copy of my novel, When Joseph Comes to Town, When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. All you have to do is go over to our NPE Patreon community at patreon.com slash NPE podcast and sign up at the $12.99 level. It's a $12.99 monthly fee to help support our great message. And I will give you 
a copy of my novel autographed for free. Or you could pay a little more and have me not autograph it if you prefer that. But uh, I, I think some people enjoy having me autograph it. And I will get that to you if you go to our Patreon community at, at patreon.com slash podcast and sign up at the $12.99 level. Now, if you're at the $5.99 level, you'll get to hear all, all our discussions and all those things. But you have to sign up at a $12.99 monthly level. And at the end of the first month, we will send you an autographed copy of that book. So go check it out and hang out with us here as we change the world through challenging mindsets on the nonpartisan evangelical podcast at npepodcast.com.